coming November 15th, a brand new season of That's What She Did podcast. We'll be bringing you 10 inspiring women you probably don't already know. On this new season of the podcast, we're shining a light on women that are at the intersection of activism and storytelling. They're fearlessly using their art, expression, and personal narratives to change the world. You're going to hear from actors and playwrights, poets and artists, filmmakers and authors. There are women unapologetically challenging the status quo, and you need to hear their stories. Prepare to be inspired. This season, our fourth, is going to be pure fire, and you don't want to miss this. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, that's what she did podcast.com. Hey there, Inspiration Junkies. It's me again, Tangia Renee, your host, and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 7 of That's What She Did Podcast. Before we get started, there's something that you need to know, and that's that there are only three episodes left after today. That's it, three. This season is flying by, and I've been having a blast. I hope you have loved it as much as I have. I've been so thrilled with the feedback from this season and the surprising number of downloads that we are getting. With each episode that comes out, we seem to be growing, and I have you, our listeners, to thank for that. So thank you. Please continue to share the show, let other people know what you're listening to and why they should listen to this show. What value are you getting here? Let folks know. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button. I would love it if you would share with me where you are listening to our show. So take a selfie or a screenshot and let me know, where are you listening to the show? Is it in the car? Are you at the gym? Are you out walking your dog or going for your for a hike? What are you doing? So take a selfie, post it on the gram, and tag us at That's What She Did Podcast. I would love to just be able to see your beautiful faces, know where you love to listen to our show, and give you a shout out for being such incredible listeners. So thank you again. Now I want to introduce you to this week's guest. I have for you Jasmine Chavez. She is a communications and digital strategist with over 15 years of experience in using digital storytelling and strategic outreach in underrepresented communities. A lawyer by trade and a Huffington Post contributor, Jasmine came to the U.S. from Juarez, Mexico as a child and as a former dreamer. Now based out of New York City, Jasmine uses her skills and lawyering background to focus her work on using digital communications to advance Latino community outreach initiatives. She's a great guest and one that I'm so thrilled that we were able to get on the show this season because she has a unique perspective about the intersection of activism and storytelling. And it's specifically around digital storytelling. So we live in a digital world. We're all seeing things on social media and the internet's all the time. And Jasmine is one of those unique storytellers that uses that medium to advance social justice work. So I'm thrilled to bring her to you to give you another perspective of this intersection of activism and storytelling as we explore this a little bit more this season. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That's What She Did podcast and continuing with our theme this season of activists and storytellers, I'm bringing to you a different kind of storyteller. We haven't heard from this kind of storyteller yet this season, and so I'm very, very excited to introduce you all to Jasmine Chavez. So she is a digital strategist. She knows all about community organizing, civic tech, digital communications, and all of the ways that digital world intertwines and connects with and overlaps with the world of activism, advocacy, and storytelling. We're excited to talk about her work today and all of the different things that we should probably think about when it comes to digital storytelling. Thank you for joining us, Jasmine. Thank you for having me. I am super excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you here. It's been sort of a long time coming. For context, everyone, Jasmine and I are sorority sisters. (laughs) We go way back. (laughs) Way back. Way, way back. And this is the first time we've actually had a chance to like sort of 
collaborate on something that wasn't college related. Yes, I am very, and I've always been a big fan of your leadership and you as a sister. I was pledging when uh, Tangia was a big sister and I was always just, she's incredible. So just excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) You're too sweet. That was a million years ago, it feels like. (laughs) (laughs) But I have fond memories those days. Yes, for sure. Me too. Major shout out to Pi Lambda Chi. (laughs) Yes. At any rate, I'm really excited to have you here. One thing I want to start with is In addition to being a digital strategist now and your background in community organizing and civic and all of that stuff, you're also by trade a lawyer. Yes. And a former dreamer. Yes. So let's start there. So how does little Jasmine, a dreamer at the time, get to where you are today? What was maybe the thing that brought you into the work that you do now? Very unconventional. I have a three-year-old daughter and I always think when people ask me like, oh, what is she, what, what is she going to be when you grow up? And I was like, uh, she'll probably be like a gazillion things because there's no real straight path. I mean, for doctors, of course, lawyers, for the most part, you know, we have a pretty straight path, but I've had a very unconventional path to the work that I do today. And, you know, I'm originally from Juarez, Chihuahua, Mexico. I grew up in, in parts of Juarez. I grew up in Denver. Um, I've been in New York now for nine years and um, it's just been an incredible journey. You know, I think Growing up undocumented, you get to see and you get to live and experience a life that is, you know, it it absolutely informs and it really ingrains into who you are as a person in terms of any injustice that you see or the strong work ethic of your parents or the injustices that you see across the country of, of like, you know, immigrants being targeted and your deep understanding that you're an immigrant. I was really young when I realized I was undocumented. I was about four or five years old in kindergarten. I had one an art scholarship like it was really weird but I had run an art scholarship through like a bank and had gone to the dinner gotten the award and it was about like a ten thousand dollar scholarship and the following week my kindergarten teacher pulled me aside and said that the money had been taken away from me because I was undocumented um and I like at the moment it was just one of those things where I was just like I don't I don't even know what that means you know she tried to explain it to me like you need a number the social security number I remember deeply just like rattling off numbers to try to hoping that I could guess one, right? And she broke out into tears and then I felt worse because I was like, oh my God, I made a teacher cry. But I went home that night and I remember sitting with my parents and I remember this fondly. I mean, being so little and my parents just letting me know that like, you know, we are different than anybody else, but that doesn't make you less than anybody else. And they just said, you're just going to have to work a little bit harder. And I don't think that that ever seemed like I remember the moment being really upset and being very much like, well, nobody's ever going to take anything away from me that isn't that I didn't deserve. And also thinking like nobody deserves to ever have this happen to them. Um, And so I was very much thinking, I, I think from that moment on, like I just I feel like I've always been hyper empathetic. I've always been someone who cares deeply about other people. Um, and all people. Um, and that kind of just really allowed me to really focus my life in a way that was of, of service to the community, right? So I did, I was a huge volunteer person all through, you know, middle school, high school, um, just trying to make the world better. And, and I think for me is making sure that there wasn't another five-year-old out there who would have to feel that pain and, and that like that anger and, and even just like a little bit of shame, right? Um, whatever I could do to be able to kind of lessen people's, you know, feelings of that, then, then I kind of went fully in that direction. And so um, I thought I I had been told over and over that I would be a great lawyer and that that I could do immigration law and I could help people. And so I went to law school, focused on being an immigration lawyer. Law school was really hard. Um, And I remember thinking being there, not really, I think being a Latina and being in higher education is hard. I think being a Latina in law school is incredibly difficult. There's like 0.02% of us in law school and it's not a very, it's not a conducive place for people of color in general. And you, and you question yourself a lot, right? Like I'm here because I'm, I just got in because I'm Brown or, or whatever it might be. But there was also moments of myself when I was in law school, just not knowing that this was the right path. Um, because yes, I would be helping people, but you still have to make money. And, and even when I would tell my colleagues like, oh, well, I would really just rather like just not make money and, and like just like I remember at one point I was like, I just want a like a big 
RV bus that I could take like in the neighborhoods and bring law help into communities. Um, and people would be like, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> and so for me, it was just, I, 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 like, I knew I liked it. I liked law school, but it was just difficult to try to figure out if that's really where I wanted to spend my, my life. So um, I graduated law school. I moved to New York. Um, I thought I could, you know, I could be a lawyer anywhere. I failed the bar the first two times. And during that time I had started doing social media. And while I was in law school, I had actually started to work with, um, there was a group called College in Colorado, which allowed, uh, it really provides like educational resources to schools across the state. And I had done actually promoting their first like digital platform to help kids understand like op different career opportunities. Um, and how parents understand savings plans. And there was a lot of like basic digital stuff involved then. And then I had done work with MALDAP and organized communities in the south, uh, southern part of Colorado and northern part of New Mexico around the census um, in 2010 or not 2010. What was it? Was it? I, gosh, I can't even remember anymore. It had to be around 2010. Yeah, it was around 2010. Um, and I had used MySpace to organize people. And I had reached out to Latino Greeks in Southern Colorado and Northern New Mexico and was like, yo, I'm a Latina Greek. I'm coming down, help me get people counted. Um, and then we saw the rise of the Barack Obama administration, right? And, or the campaign and, and the way that they were organizing communities online. And at the time I was working with the department of the interior um, to make sure that, and to work on the creation of the museum of the American Latino. And so I worked with a lot of communications and a lot of PR firms and, you know, Twitter had just come on the scene. Facebook was starting to be used more than just like poking people. And we were trying to think through ways that we could uh, really um, collect the stories of what it is to be an American Latino in the country through Facebook. Um, and I, I just fell in love with this idea of like digital storytelling and seeing the Obama campaign, the way that they did it and falling in love with one of the, I think the best storytellers in our time and just seeing the way that they translated from online to offline and vice versa. I just thought it was brilliant. So um, I hadn't, I hadn't passed a bar in New York and I was doing my side hustle was doing digital media, helping small businesses and like artists do their social media. And I remember just thinking, um, you know, like, why don't I switch it around? Like, why don't I become like a communicator and like digital advocacy and side hustle as a lawyer? And that way the pressure of like trying to pass the bar was really kind of removed at that point. And I had even talked with a few of my legal friends and one of my best friends um, from California and I, and she was a lawyer too. And I said, you know what? I, I just think there's, there's, we could do a lot of winning if we focus on how we tell the story of the communities that we're trying to litigate for, right? So with impact litigation, you know, you're intentionally going into talent to legislation or these rules or laws that are in towns and cities or, you know, in governments or whatever it might be. But the cost of that to the person, I mean, you're looking at like 10 years of litigation, right? And I was thinking, you know, like, what if we could go in and organize communities and change the hearts and minds through the power of like narrative before we even have to litigate, right? Like what if we could just scale that empathy and get people to understand that like, this is just wrong and look at look at it from like a values-based perspective, right? And I had, you know, I had other friends who were like, that's crazy. Um, but I, I went that I, I went that route and Latino Justice Pearl Duff in New York was the first place that allowed me to come in. I was their first digital organizer. I came in and they just kind of gave me the space to, to create. And it was through that, that I kind of really learned what digital organizing was. And um, at the time there was schools all across the country teaching digital organizing and storytelling. So it was just a beautiful time to learn from like some of the, the most brilliant people that I know in the field. Um, and I've just been doing it ever since. Hey friends. I want to tell you about a new podcast called the mother load. From actresses and friends Constance Zimmer and Missy Pyle, we all know that parenting is messy and this show gets real and rips the band-aid off of the idea that anyone can be a parent. It's about progress, not perfection. Together, with a variety of special guests, some celeb friends and experts, Constance and Missy talk about what really happens as a parent. The confusion, the uncomfortable moments, the best and the worst when it comes to raising kids. The show provides an unfiltered community filled with authentic conversations and experiences, lots of laughs, and even a few tears. 
This is a place people can go to express their frustration about all the parenting mishaps that no one wants to admit or feels comfortable talking about. If you like what you hear, head over to Motherload Podcast and hit subscribe. Yeah, um, I, I remember when you were at Latino Justice. Um, what Define for the audience exactly what is digital organizing? Digital organizing is basically the, the tactics that we use to be able to get people to do something online or to get them to do something online. And then ideally in a perfect world for like elections or for general advocacy and organizing in like nonprofits and communities is to get them to come out to things, right? Can we get them from online to on the ground? That means, can we get them knocking on doors? Can we get them uh, volunteering with us? Can we get them to come with us uh, to Washington, D.C. to speak with our senators or to protest? So the different digital tactics that we use to move people into action. And that could be everything from email. It could be SMS. It could be digital marketing. Nowadays, there's very sophisticated, what we call ladder of engagement or traditional PR work. You're looking at marketing funnels that are moving people from an initial action into on the ground. I can walk you actually through the way that the Obama campaign did it in one of the most like brilliant moves when they first launched. Yeah, let's talk about that because I remember watching this when it happened. And I remember, so first of all, like when Obama first ran, I was like, he's going to (laughs) win. When I saw the strategy, because I was organizing at that time as well, not digital yet, but I remember going, this is brilliant. Like, this is going to work because nobody had done it before. (laughs) So yes. So exactly. So explain how that worked. The and, and I have to say this, I did not work on the Obama campaign. I know tons of brilliant people who did, and but I learned from them. So I just want to definitely not taking ownership for any of this. I mean, you're talking about just some of the smartest people who came out of this. I mean, just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant people. But the way that it's done and the way that people usually see it is, and the way that it's mostly done these days is first you're going to see basically, because they don't have your email yet, right? Like for, for us, like we're always trying to get your email or your phone number because that allows us to then build a relationship with you. And this is probably going to creep people out. And I apologize, but now you're going to know how your data works and how you're being moved into a funnel to act for good or for bad. But basically, you know, one of the first things is that you're trying to create awareness of who the person is or who the brand is. And so you are just putting general ads to get your interest. In, right. So back then it was just a Facebook page. I don't know they weren't necessarily running what we would consider today kind of like those stronger Facebook political ads. And so you would like the page. Right. So then you liked the Obama, you know, kickoff page. And once you like the page, the algorithms aren't what they are today, where you're only seeing like 10 percent of, of, of the people that you actually follow. So when they would post something, you would actually see it. So when they posted the first thing, I remember one of the first things that came up was Obama's birthday. So it was like, today's Obama's birthday. Click here to send them a birthday card. So then what do you do? You've now clicked on that and now you've engaged. So we know that you are willing to take an action outside of just liking the page. You clicked on there and from there, it's going to take you to a landing page. And we've already tracked that you came from that Facebook page and that post into that landing page. So we have a little pixel that allows us to say, ah, this person came in from here. And let's see what they do. So, of course, the page itself is saying it's Obama's birthday. So sign the card. And back then, I don't remember if it was like sign the card and also donate five dollars. I think you had the option of signing the card and not sending any money at the time. But most likely than not, they're asking you for money. You signed the card. You sent five dollars because five dollars. Everybody's got five dollars for the most part. Right. You sign the card and to be able to make that payment, you've submitted your email. You've now submitted your email. So now you're in our email system. And so we're going to send you a thank you email to let you know, hey, thank you so much. You're now on the Latinos for Obama list. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And just welcome to the email, basically, right? You're now on a list. And then what happens from there, I remember very clearly, I got an email from Michelle Obama. And then you get an email from Michelle Obama and she's asking you, join the team, right? Like join the the amazing groundswell of supporters on the ground, buy a t-shirt or get a sticker 
and, and it was such a, I mean, if you think back to that moment, it was like, hell yeah, you know, like this is our first black president. I'm going to buy everything to remember this moment. So now you've given your credit card information, you gave your address, you've confirmed it again, that you've now moved up a step. You've moved up like three steps in our ladder of engagement. You are now what we call like our super supporters, right? Like you've donated, you bought merchandise. So the next big, and we've now built a relationship with you, right? Like we've, we've been consistent in messaging you, hopefully not too much. And so then now we have your address and now we're going to take your address and send you a customized email saying, hey, you know what? We have 30 volunteers in your area this weekend. Can you come out and door knock? So now we've gone from just you liking the Facebook page or these days just clicking on an ad and we have your email, we have your phone number, we have your address. If you say, yes, I would like to volunteer, great, we have it. And you've already probably given your phone number and now we're going to also send you SMS messages. So now we've fully converted you pretty much into like a follower and a super supporter to come from online into on the ground and support us in door knocking. And that's kind of, that's what like a full ladder of engagement looks like these days back in the day. And it still very much looks like that today. Yeah, I think there's the, the basics are the same, but I do remember, you know, I wasn't on the campaign either. I volunteered a whole lot for that campaign though. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think we all did. We go from that. And the thing that I'd like to ask you about next is, how do you think we get from there where the use of digital and building a relationship and being able to move people to actions? And here we are in this place now, you know, we fast forward to today, and there is a complete and utter distrust of digital. And... It's been used in some really yeah. shitty ways, yeah. quite frankly. It, you know, and, and, and I do work in PR these days where I do know what that data mining and that data marketing looks like. How do you turn off being targeted? Because there are ways that you can go into Facebook and actually see how many times your information has been sold. Like I, I, I saw my information on like Cars of Wisconsin or something. And it was like, oh my God, like how did you get that my information? These days, we have much more sophisticated tools where back in the day, it was really like from like mishmashes of like technologies that we were trying to track people, right? Like we were trying to track people through very specific, you know, what we call like UTM parameters. And so we could identify the landing pages that people were coming from, or we could identify what was driving people there. We didn't have necessarily like really easy, you know, say we have a tool called like phone to action, you have spark influence, you have tons of, they're called CRMs. CRM is basically like a data, a database that allows people to be able to have your information and engage with how well you are or aren't responding to whether it's emails or SMS. So we have a variety of tools, right, where, and they're very sophisticated tools that really work in conjunction with Facebook or they work in conjunction with MailChimp that allows us to kind of see an ecosystem of who the supporters are. And that's just from the basic tools, right? From a data perspective, I mean, what the Obama campaign did really well is, and what we saw them do really well is we saw them use data and take it online voter registration information, voter turnout information, and kind of lining it up with who was like most likely to be supporters. And again, I wasn't a part of this. This is all just like a perspective of looking back and, and being in conversation with folks much like years, years, years later. But today, I mean, you're looking at the Trump administration currently spending almost, I think at the last thing, it's like over $6 million a day on digital ads. You're looking at the access to data in a way that we definitely didn't have right in like 2008, 2010. We, you're looking at information and it's, and it's data that people don't even really know that they've given up. And, I, and the way that I always explain this is like, um, you know, like if you love Kate Spade and you go visit the Kate Spade um, website and you find a dress that you love and you put it in your cart and then you're like, I don't know if I want it right now. And you just walk away. That dress, all of you have seen it where it follows you, right? It's like, oh, hey, here's, here's that dress and here's that dress and here's that dress. That's what we call retargeting because we've already got your information. We already have basically your IP address that you've gone there. That's it. And we have, you know, it's like a, it's a very specific code that allows us to know that you have this within your shopping cart. And so then that triggers an email that's like, hey, did you forget something? It's in your cart. And so then what, what, what we have now is really playing on the behavioral and psychographic data of people. So it's not just like, who, you know, what is their gender? Where do they live? What are the demographics of the person? But it's literally being able to pinpoint an exact behavior 
right? So people could tell a story, right? Like if, if this, the season's about stories, your whole habits as a person, as they exist online, and even, it's not even just online, even your geolocation tells a story. So if I'm trying to like lose weight and I'm just like, yep, I'm going to go to the gym and my geolocation has me going to the gym every day. And then it has me going to the corner donut shop right afterwards. My geolocation is telling a story that I'm not really fully committed to my workout. So I will get ads that are based off of that story. And, and that mm -hmm. information is coming in through your weather app. It's coming in through Google Maps. It's coming in through any type of geo-based location devices or apps on your phone that is telling a story about you. And so that is the dangerous world that we live in today in the sense that people are being manipulated and being fed stories. When, and this is what we saw with Cambridge Analytica that we know that these communities exist. We know that this is the type of stories they consume and you build stories that look real to kind of like satiate that type of like behavior and that hunger for those types of stories. So it's, it's really dangerous territory that we're playing with. And that's why you saw Twitter. Twitter will no longer do political ads. Google just came out yesterday. They are also not going to be engaging um, in some political ad activity, but it's because We've, it's now kind of like the wild, it was the wild, wild west, and now everything has kind of been caught. And we're now back into a point of trying to think about how do you actually engage with audiences in a very real way that doesn't feel gross and it doesn't feel invasive. And that isn't used against them, right? Exactly. So that's what Cambridge Analytica did, is they took that data, mined that data, and then... Oh, yeah figured out how to use that story against you to get you to believe things that were completely fabricated. Yeah. Oh, and it's still happening today. Just so folks know, they, it's still very much happening today. Um, so just, you know, be careful what you consume. When we're talking about this idea of digital storytelling, one thing that I've observed of late, you know, I sort of heard rumblings of this, well, I first started noticing this conversation, I would say, about six months ago. And then I've noticed over like the last maybe two months, really since the time, in my mind, I mark it since the time that um, the impeachment conversation started to become more intense. There's this underlying conversation in around digital of saying, like, maybe we just shouldn't have digital at all. Like maybe we highly regulate the internet and really control what people are able to say and do because it's just too dangerous and we would be in a better world if people couldn't access ads or couldn't access data and maybe we should just do away with it. What are your thoughts with that argument? I don't think I, would, I can necessarily say yes to that only because I think that there's opportunities to use data for good. I used to like not like data. I don't like Excel sheets. I'm terrible at math. I <laughs> like if you told me about statistics and econ in college, I would have just cried. But there's also storytelling within data that is just really valuable. And, and that data that exists online, like there's a lot of bad that could absolutely be done. And I think we've seen some of the worst of it done with, with 2016 elections. I think we've actually seen some of it still happening today. Even with the impeachment proceedings, there's a really great article recently coming out about there's actually two narratives that are being played out in the proceeding. And one is obviously what the public is seeing on like CNN, MSNBC. And there's another one and it's a Republican tactic. And I will say this, I don't know which, you know, how your users sway in the political spectrum, but the Republican Party has always been really great. And they've actually, they've really outgamed progressives for a while now. And what they're doing even during this impeachment proceedings is that they are asking like the weirdest questions, but they're asking them to be able to create content for like the Breitbart and the conspiracy theories of the work world. And so what you're saying in terms of seeing two different narratives play out or two different things that we're seeing, you're absolutely right. That is exactly what's happening. But at the same time, I think there's opportunities for us to be able to use data or even like digital data, right? Like if we think of like voter suppression in, in regions like in the South, or if we looked at even the Black Lives Matter movement in terms of how they use digital media to really amplify the stories of police killings of African-Americans across the country. Like if we didn't have, if we had a regulated internet, those stories might not come out. That And, and it doesn't make sense. We don't want to control the internet so much that there isn't a freedom of, of people being heard because it's one of the last places where people can actually like be authentic and we can share stories and things can get out much faster than if it was something that was regulated because then the question is who's regulating it? Right. Who, who gets to decide what comes out and what doesn't come out? And then in terms of the data, 
there has been a lot of advancement in terms of like, you know, there was a moment there where there was also a lot of like proprietary lending that was happening through like apps and like Facebook ads targeting, you know, people with like specific credit scores. That kind of stuff is like, is terrible. We shouldn't be using that. But then there's also opportunities where you can use data to be able to help communities in a way to show like an impact in a certain way and use that data to do good. Yeah. So when I hear that argument, to me, it sounds very elitist. The argument that there should be some kind of a gatekeeper Mm -hmm. monitoring what every single person is doing and sort of deciding who is worthy of using it, who can be trusted. Because I think to your point, that happens, then you don't have this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of podcasts out there that you don't have. There's a lot of content out there that you don't have. There's a lot of stories that you're never going to be able to hear. And and that's what makes me really wary and nervous about net neutrality. Yeah. I think of like the Arab Spring when that happened, that all of that got out and that all sparked because those activists were able to use Twitter. Yeah. To get their stories out. And it became a movement. With Black Lives Matter, they use digital to be able to create a movement. And it, It's just like, who are the elitists that are deemed worthy enough to be the regulators and decide who uses it and who doesn't? And and it's a big question, right? I mean, look at China, right? Like you can't not, you can't just say whatever you want in China, right? Like they don't, you know, they very much control the internet in a way that is very oppressive. It's very restrictive. The government decides what can and cannot go on. And they control the narrative. They control the narrative of what most people can see. And it's it's a really dangerous situation. Yeah, and it's not just China. There's several others. Several others. Same thing. Tons. <laughs> and, and there's also government to do it off and on, you know, like, or in cities. Like, I will say that, like, there's been times here in New York City where, like, you know, back in the day when we would, like, protest, there was a, you know, we had the death of Khalif Browder. We had Eric Gardner. And, we, you know, we took to the streets and the police had like these really crazy looking like sound cannons that would completely just take your phone off, off service. So like you would lose service for like a good probably hour or two hours. And, and those are like actual government tactics that they can also like take down the network if they want to, if, if in case of an emergency, like they could absolutely take down the network and not have people be able to access their information. So that type of thing also is real even here at home. Yeah, that's frightening to think about. I've never heard of these canon things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's frightening. Yeah. No, we saw them here in New York, and people had had confirmed that there were these devices that knock service off of your phone. Wow. I mean, if anything, that just goes to show you how powerful a medium digital communication is and why it would be so central to not just storytelling, but activism and, and movement, social movements in general, because it's it's right there in your hand. And so he who controls the tool controls the story. Without a doubt. And I think that's why digital storytelling in the age as we see it today is just so incredibly powerful because anybody can tell a story and anybody can make it viral, really, right? Like, again, Black Lives Matter was just so instrumental in bringing to like front and center what was happening in the world or not in the world in, in the United States. And, and we, you saw it live, you saw it live on Facebook streaming live. You saw it happening on people's videos. You know, there was no longer the police couldn't control the narrative anymore about, well, this person had a gun or I, or they pointed something at me and it made me scared. You know, we saw that with Tamir Rice shooting in Cleveland, Ohio, where, you know, we're able to see two sides of a story because of, you know, thank God, thank goodness we have video surveillance. That's the power of digital these days is that anybody, anybody could tell a story with it, with their phone. We can get it out there and, and we can share it and we can make it viral and, and we have proof that it happened. And it's and now it's, it's enough proof to be able to go against, you know, in court or to be able to at least bring about some kind of like call for public support or awareness or change, ideally a change in policy, because we now have that evidence. What do you think is the future of digital and activism? I think we're definitely going to be seeing more, I mean, the the use of your data is going to be defining the type of stories that you will be receiving no matter what. (laughs) 
the good thing and the bad thing about that is that, you know, like, let's say if you're someone who fights for immigrant rights or social advocate, you are a strong supporter for communities. I mean, you're going to be continuing to receive stories that reflect that bubble for you. You know, so there there will be ways for you to engage. There will be ways for you to be able to to make a difference. At the same time, there, you know, if if we're able to access that information about you, so is everybody else. I think the future of digital storytelling, obviously, I think I think on like an organic side, right, like a non-paid side, I think we're going to see more of people being able to use digital in a way to tell their own story, their own narratives, and their own experiences, which I think is wonderful. But on the paid side, I think people will continue to see tailored stories that fit their life, you know, and, and not just like, again, not just demographic that because you live in Colorado, you're going to get stories about Colorado, but who are you as a person? You know, even if you're like an eternal optimist and you love yoga and you believe in Buddhism, you're going to get those ads, right? Because somewhere along the line, whether you signed in through Facebook or Google or some way that you shared your information, that information about who you are is going to really define the stories and the the type of ads and engagement that you're going to receive. How does somebody who wants to get more authentic access to information do that because to your point everything the ads right the are tailoring everything to you so a lot of what you click on is kind of going to determine what eco chamber you're living in mm-hmm. but if you wanted to get the counterpoints you wanted to hear a narrative that doesn't align a hundred percent with what you're always used to hearing how do you do that that's a great question and I don't know that I fully know that because to, I think you have to have a sense of awareness to be able to say, I don't want to just receive that type of information. And you have to actively seek those additional like information sources. I will say that one of the best things that you could do to be able to get like actual real live updates of the things that matter the most to you is email listservs, right? So if if you love, again, if you support immigrant rights, or if you support, if you want to do like organizations that are doing work against community policing or, you know, whatever, whatever really like just like sets your soul on fire, find the people who are doing that work and sign up for their emails because that's the best way that you get like first person information about what is happening on the ground or what's happening at a national level. And of course, I will, I would always encourage people to like, just read outside your sources, right? Like if a blog title sounds weird, it's probably not real. Even if it's like meditative medicine for new babies, it, it might not be real. Just And I say that because I see stuff like that all the time. And then I see people quote it um, as like, this is legit. But like, re- like literally pick up a book and read or like find authoritative venues for you to be able to get a perspective or a different perspective of what is being said. But going to like the people and the organizations who are doing the work is probably one of the best ways to get just like the best information possible. As someone who is a digital storyteller, you know, this is what you do every day and have been doing for quite some time. How do you become a better storyteller? I think you have to, I think to be a good storyteller, you have to be a really great listener. You have to be able to listen to, you have to be able to observe. You have to be able to observe and understand what you're seeing in a way that allows you to be able to explain it to to like a four-year-old. And you have to be able to listen to make sure that you're understanding and being empathetic or understanding it as you should be understanding it and not trying to put in necessarily like your biases on it first. I think your biases can come in afterwards, obviously, as you're going to spin it to be a good story. You have to learn to listen and you have to be like, you have to stay curious. And I think you also have to be able to question, right? Like, I think, I think you have to, not saying that you have to be skeptical, but I think asking the right questions in terms of understanding the impact and understanding, you know, what's at risk and, and is just really important. Understanding the person, right? I think even if you're listening to a story from somebody else, like, what is the objective? What is their objective behind telling you the story? You know, I'll say this, that a couple of, of months ago in July, I was in El Paso, Texas with Hispanics and Philanthropy and Emerging from Juarez, so I had gone on a border delegation with them, and we did a visit with Border Patrol, and they took us, and I didn't really know what to expect, and to be honest, I didn't really want to go, just because growing up undocumented, like, Border Patrol was probably one of the most frightening people that you could possibly think of, 
and and that trauma by by all means um still continues to stay with me and but I also knew that this was a moment an opportunity for me to understand the other side and I think that's what's difficult even when you're saying like how do we make sure that we try to stay out of our echo chamber you have to to get out of your echo chamber you have to really get outside of your comfort zone and you have to get you have to be really comfortable in uh, in trying to understand what you don't know or what you haven't heard, right? And so I went, I was on a bus with Border Patrol and it turned out to be just like the stuff they were saying was just some of the most ridiculous stuff I had ever heard. And it also aligned with the narrative that I've seen them say over and over from the beginning of the migration, of this of this um, humanitarian migration situation that's happening in the Southern border. And it got to a point where I was just like, I can't sit here and not question this man as a storyteller and as a communicator, I have to be able to push back and really question how they got to their assumptions and how they got to this point, how they got to the story. And it was a really difficult moment because I, you know, it, it was, again, like, I'm just like, oh, here, I'm like talking back to Border Patrol when like, you know, 20 years ago, I'd probably detained and be detained and deported. And I had also seen stuff carried out by Border Patrol against my own family. And so, but I knew it was a moment of like, you know what, you just need like five seconds of courage and ask your questions. And the stuff that they were saying was just really terrible stuff. And, and they were really lumping these migrant and asylum seekers as rapists, as drug dealers, as child molesters. I mean, you, literally, you could go down the list of like what bad hombres are. And that's what they were referring to people as. And it just got to the point where I was just like, you know what, like, how can you serve these people when you can only view them as that? That doesn't make any sense. You're the first line of like support that they're looking for and you're already seeing them as criminals. So how does that impact the way in which you service them? And, you know, we got into like a big fight and it turned into like this moment where I was like, you know what, it's not that I'm going to change their opinion and they're definitely not going to change mine. I got Mm -hmm. to really, at least it was affirming to me that what I knew I had seen as a narrative coming out from the right and from Border Patrol, it's a national narrative that they are all deeply aligned on and they beat us on that every Mm -hmm. time their stories are on point they all know what to say how to say it who to say it to and so it's so different than what we like we have so many stories to tell right we don't have just one story that we have to get right we are so many communities so many stories so many things but on that on their side it affirmed for me ah like you all have the same talking points you've now confirmed what I thought was happening how do you think they get such alignment on those talking points? And why can't another side do that? You know, I think it's because it's just much easier to unify and go against another, right? Like it's, they've lumped, it's the other, but also like the attack of the American values, right? And so if you look at it from like a perspective of like, these are American values, our American values of like, you pick yourself up by the bootstrap and you do things right and you are patriotic first and everything else is second, then everything that goes against that is wrong, right? So um, if you're not American and you want to come to this country, that's wrong. If you believe in building community to pull one another up, that's wrong. You know, it, it, it's just the way that they've been able to really prey on people's vulnerabilities as it's going to impact their values as American is really, I think, I think one of the ways in which that they're really organized and, and all on one, one message. For us, I think as like progressive folks, as community folks, as those of us on the ground and, and even those of us a little bit more to the left, there's so many battles that we don't have a shared analysis on. We don't have a shared agreement on, you know, sometimes it turns into like, you know, like the oppressive Olympics of like, well, my people, you know, were this and we were that. And, but it's also intentional, right? Like the, the, the impact of how this administration has segmented and fragmented all of us where now people like people have to choose. How are you going to show up today? Are you going to fight for our LGBTQ military men and women? Or are you going to show up for, you know, DACA students? Because it's going to be hard to do both because both of them require a lot of energy and both of them require money to fight this fight. Um, And it's the same thing if you look at like, you know, if we look at like policing, right? Policing is is an issue where like, it's like, well, are you, you're either for law, if you're for community organizing um, against community policing, then that means you just hate the police. And it's like, no, I'm just trying to live in a world where like we could actually feel safe 
and, and that's the thing is that we're not thinking of, um, we're, we're just so fragmented and we're, we're fighting so many fights on so many fronts on, on so many different levels of how people want to communicate that, that it's really hard for us to get on one message, to get on one narrative, because it, we don't really have that shared agreement that like, this is how we talk about poverty in America. This is how we talk about black and brown, uh, you know, violence or that's perpetrated by police. This is, this is how we talk about, you know, Native women, you know, Native American women disappearing in, in the reservations or like in the U.S. There's just no, there's no time and there's no agreement. And, but on the other side, it's like, oh man, if you are against everything America is, that's it. It's much easier to organize everybody. Yeah, it's very binary, which is something that's always a red flag to me is that when, a, when I hear something and it's very black yeah. and white, like it is this or it's that, you're this or you're that, I'm always immediately suspicious of it. Yeah. I'm just, I'm suspicious by nature. So that's just <laughs> the way that I'm going. I mean, so. I think most people are. And, and I think like, I mean, look at us as like American Latinos, right? Like it's like, of course, mm-hmm. like my dad was the most patriotic Mexican in the world. But he came here and documented, right? And and so you're also, and, and at the same time, they lo- we love this country. It's a part of who we are. But there's also like a sense of justice and a sense of community that we've also brought up with that I don't see it as going counter to what it is to be American. I don't see it as going counter to what my values are, right? But other groups, other groups see it that way. And, and it's just, um, you know, this othering. It's so easy to other versus for us, it's harder to unify. It's easier to, it's much easier to break us apart than it is for us to be able to unify everybody around a message. And, and I'm not saying it's impossible because we've absolutely also seen it, right? Like here in New York with the Muslim ban, like we showed up to the airport and freaking like we shut down JFK to be able to show support to Muslim mm-hmm. communities arriving and to our Muslim brothers and sisters. Um, but it, it's totally possible, but it just takes a lot more work. So here, I mean, here's the beautiful thing, right? The, the power of digital allows us for you to find out where where is it that you want to put your time and your money and your effort in, right? You can, you know, because of the internet, you can find, like, if you want to just save puppies from pounds, <clears throat> go find an organization online um, and you can share their story. You can share their Facebook page. I mean, I think that's what's so powerful about digital storytelling right now is that we are able to tell really powerful stories. Um, I think I, I think of like people like Paola Mendoza and the Families Belong Together Coalition, where you know they've gone to the southern border, they've they've gone and and, and created these beautiful art and digital spaces and conversations around these really really traumatic and deep things that are happening with our communities. But for every you know, I always tell people if you read a really bad story about like sixty seven thousand children have been taken away from their parents. You can fill a freaking football stadium with that. If that breaks your heart, find the closest organization, Google, you know, the closest migrant rights or the closest shelter that is near you where you can, of people who are doing that work because then it, then it allows you to respond. And, and so I, people shouldn't be afraid to be able to, you know, if, if something pulls your at your heartstrings from, from the stories that you're seeing online, act on it right like in that moment you have the power my you know my husband always says you have a powerful computer in your pocket <laughs> you know pick it up and find ways that you can help and sometimes it is just signing up for their email that's a huge huge step for people and if you want to go further reach out to them and there's tons of things that you can do whether you're donating whether you are showing up whether you're volunteering if, if you're bilingual and you want to go do you know, if you do want to go to Southern Border, there's tons of organizations that will take you in and, and help you uh, volunteer there. So there's a lot of things that you can do because of the power of digital storytelling. Who do you think is really killing it in digital storytelling right now? Oh, man, I'm, I stand so hard and I'm such a big lover. There's just like so many people who do such amazing work. I definitely think Families Belong Together is doing a really wonderful job. I think Raices out of Texas is doing a beautiful job. And these are because these are organizations that I, I, I follow a lot of like the migrant uh, humanitarian situation happening. Al Otro Lado, Al Otro Lado is an organization out of Tijuana that is doing really powerful storytelling. The New York Times is actually doing some really powerful visual data visualization. And again, when we talk about data and how data tells the story, data visualization allows us to tell those stories. I will say... I think Equal Justice Initiatives, the Equal Justice Initiative is an organization out of Alabama where they have actually like monuments to lynching in America. 
um, in, in the South. And they've done really incredible videos and incredible storytelling around lynching in America and what it means. And there's even a really powerful video of Brian Stevenson breaking down the impact of incarceration and how it's all connected, even to like the detentions that we're seeing today. I think they've done a marvelous mm -hmm. job, but there's just so, there's also individuals. There's Paola Ramos um, is doing amazing digital storytelling around uh, Latinx communities that we don't necessarily like always see, right? So whether it's like transgender cholos, right? Or like just like women in the Valley doing uh, environmental and reproductive justice work at the same time. She's really bringing to life these stories that we just, that you wouldn't necessarily know they exist. And of course, there's like some, there's like some elected leaders like AOC for better or for worse, however people feel about her. She's an amazing storyteller because she's always prepared. She's always ready and she, she comes with facts. And the way that she makes herself accessible to the public is really powerful. So um, Adi Barkin is another person. He runs the Be a Hero uh, campaign. And I think he's probably one of the best storytellers of our time in terms of how he was, how he is able to, you know, he, he's fighting ALS. And so he, his, his body is, is literally giving up on him. And he just had a daughter and to see his journey and how he is as an advocate and as a leader and how he's telling his story on his terms is just incredibly powerful. Fascinating. I will check all of those out. You named a few people that I don't already know, so I'm going to get to know them. <laughs> yes, please. They're all amazing. We will check them out. Um, thank you so much, Jasmine, for joining us. I found an opportunity to get you on. No, I am so grateful. Um, I'm just really excited for you. I'm really excited. I think um, you're a great digital storyteller. I, I should say that. That's the other thing, right? Like find podcasts that just light your soul on fire. And it's a great way to get information outside of your echo chamber. Sign up for some that are like the complete opposite of what you believe in just to see what they say. But congratulations to you because I think you are a phenomenal storyteller. And, and thank you for providing a platform for even our stories to be told. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. Like, I just feel like I'm learning this. I'm, I want to be a better storyteller, which was probably a big part of the reason why storytelling was prominent in the theme for this season, because I'm just, I'm trying to figure it out like everybody else. <laughs> I'm learning as I go. <laughs> well, you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you so much again for joining us, Jasmine. It's been absolutely my pleasure to have you on. And I can't wait to collaborate with you again sometime in the future soon, I hope. Yes, of course. As usual, thank you for giving us your time, your attention, for letting us creep into your eardrums for this time. We appreciate you so much. You want to support this show. The only thing that you really got to do, the easiest thing in the world you can do is hit subscribe and hit share. Share this episode with anybody you think might be interested or find value in these types of conversations about the incredible, impactful, badass women we have on this show. Thank you again for joining us. Go out there, folks. Be badass and stay gorgeous. Until next time, we out. We out.